have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terrence Siegel. The podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the past seven days and how we got here. On today's episode... We were able to do what we set out to do, which was get the jurors to look at this case, not through the eye of an amateur video, but through the eyes of the police officers who were uh, confronting this situation on March 3rd, 1991. It's very hard to hold the police to account for their actions. That's because of the law. All right, so I have with me Dr. Tom Tyler, a professor at Yale Law School specializing in policing. Dr. Tyler, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So I think to start with, um, obviously we're in a really unique moment in some ways as far as our policing system. And I think it's probably fair to say that three weeks on or so from George Floyd's death, we're starting to see this transition from the uproar to attempts by lawmakers to introduce some kind of change and reform. But backing up a bit to the protests themselves, I'm sure you've seen kind of these shocking images and these shocking reports of, you know, mostly peaceful protesters who are protesting police brutality and excessive force being confronted themselves with police excessive force. I'm thinking especially in New York, where a wave of protesters was met with um, batons from police officers. There's been a lot of really serious injuries. I'm just wondering, having studied policing, what did you make of, of those reports and those images? Was that surprising to you? Well, if you look at American policing, you see that almost every department uses the same approach, which is they train their officers basically to be able to compel obedience through using force. You know, so police carry guns in America and they carry clubs and tasers. And they're basically spending a lot of time learning how to control people through threatening or using force. And so when they're confronted with pretty much any problem, that's their skill set. And, you know, you're saying it's ironic. To me, the ironic part is that the same kind of inability to imagine anything except force is what leads to a lot of the instances that provoke these situations in the first place. So the police approach people in a variety of situations. They try to compel their obedience by force. The force gets out of control. The police do something that's really bad, like kill somebody. So that's an overreaction that comes out of the fact that the police approach pretty much every problem as a problem where you're trying to compel people to do things they don't want to do by using force. That seems, I mean, not really surprising in some ways, but kind of fundamentally a strange approach to educating policing. So 
Is that unique to the U.S.? You call it a training that they compel obedience by force. Is that a U.S.-specific policing strategy, or does that exist in other police departments around the world as well? Well, I think it exists in other police departments. The fundamental contradiction in American policing is that many of those police departments are dictatorships or autocratic governments. Mm. And many of the police forces that you may be more familiar with, like the United Kingdom or uh, the Netherlands or even Germany or Belgium, a lot of the European countries, not like that. The police are much more uh, about trying to work with people, get cooperation. In America, there's never really been a national model of policing. Policing developed in frontier communities. There were like neighborhood watches. We've never had a national police force and a national police philosophy. The police have just evolved. In the, the middle of the 21st century, in the 70s and 80s, they evolved in the direction of fighting crime, being tough on crime, being warrior police, basically, because there was a feeling in America that crime was out of control. There was the drug epidemic, the crack cocaine epidemic, and the police thought of themselves much more as a warrior group. So that's interesting. So before then, the reason that the police training or the, the philosophy is to compel obedience by force, that in some ways connected to the idea that we never had in the U.S. some kind of a formal institution of the police force. It's sort of evolved out of different ragtag groups of policing over time. Like, So why did that evolution lead to this police force that's so heavy on the violence and the force? You know, you can't equate America with other societies in any simple way because there are many things about America that are different. I think one of them is a long-term culture that puts more emphasis on a force-based approach. Uh, the You know, the frontier justice. I don't think it's nice you laughing. You see, my mule don't like people laughing. It's the crazy idea you're laughing at him. Now, if you apologize like I know you're going to, I might convince him that you really didn't mean it. The fact that so many people in America have guns and are part of a gun culture, the very punitive uh, Puritan Anglo nature of our heritage, that there's a strong sense on uh, wrongdoers deserve punishment, they deserve to be captured and punished. So there are a whole bunch of elements in American history that combine to support a more force-based coercive model for dealing with deviance. At the same time, I think we put a lot of weight on the tremendous pressure that the police felt in the 70s and 80s to control crime. Why did they feel that pressure? What was happening then? You have to realize that the violent crime rate in that period was much higher. The crime rate today is about 20% what it was wow. at that period. In recent years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. 
At the current rate, the crimes of violence in America will double by 1972. We cannot accept that kind of future for America. We owe it to the decent and law-abiding citizens of America to take the offensive against the criminal forces that threaten their peace and their security, and to rebuild respect for law across this country. I pledge to you, the wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in America. But that period was also an unusual period in American history, a spike in crime. Crime now is much lower and much more like historic levels. But during that period, the police became more militaristic. They became more focused on using force to control criminals and eventually to control larger segments of the community. And a lot of the problems we're seeing today are a legacy of that period. That's the time when the federal government gave states a lot of money to hire more police and when the law changed in ways that allowed the police a lot more leeway. One of the things that many of the protesters are protesting about now is this idea of qualified immunity, that it's very hard to hold the police to account for their actions. Well, that's because of the law. And the law was changed in ways that basically empowered the police to use force and assured them that, you know, there would be a, a it would be difficult to punish them or hold them to account. That comes out of a sense that controlling crime is the primary goal and that we want to make sure that the police are not hampered in their effort to do that. Yeah. What we're seeing now in an era when there's much less crime is people trying to rebalance and say, yeah, well, that's one goal, but, you know, the other goal is to protect people. Yeah. So what are some of the laws that give police immunity to a degree and make it so hard to prosecute police officers who go rogue? I think a core idea is that a police officer saying that they were afraid for their life justifies the use of force. So that's what the law actually says. If they can prove that they were fearing for their life, then they can't be held accountable for their actions, even if they're fatal? Yes, that justifies their actions. I responded because I was in fear of my life. Nowadays, many progressive departments are trying to change that and basically say that as an officer, you have to show us that you try to do everything you possibly could to avoid being in this situation where you are afraid for your life Mm. are you are responsible. So, you know, if you run up next to somebody with a gun, so you're two feet away from them, and then you say, I'm afraid for my life, the point is you shouldn't be standing there in the first place. You should be 30 feet away, and you should be yelling at that person to drop their gun. So you should have tried other reasonable courses of action before you put yourself in a situation where you had to use lethal force. So it puts more of the onus on the police officers then that they now have to, or, you know, if, if these progressive laws take effect, then they would have to actually prove that they took all of these rightful steps before getting into the situation where something went wrong. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I think we've talked quite a bit now at this point about um, excessive force, but sort of the elephant in the room is that the real problem that we're reckoning with in this moment is not just police brutality, but it's a very specific kind of police brutality, which is that they are disproportionately forceful and violent against the black communities, communities of color. So can you talk about that a little bit? 
Well, America, unfortunately, has a very long history of um, subjugation of African-Americans. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage, about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. Everyone else seemed to agree. If you walk out of Harlem, ride out of Harlem, downtown, the world agrees. What you see is much bigger, cleaner, whiter, richer, safer than where you are. They collect the garbage. People obviously can pay their life insurance. The children look happy, safe. You're not. And you go back home. And it would seem then, of course, that it's an act of God, that this is true, that you belong where white people have put you. Um, you know, that was the beginning of a framing of American society that we've never really emerged from. It still continues. And one of the more obvious examples of the way it continues in some of these policing incidents that involve minorities. It's a recurring series of events where the police act in ways that observers find really hard to justify. Rodney King is an example in Los Angeles a while back. What's the story of Rodney King? So Rodney King was in Los Angeles. He was chased by the police and he, when he was stopped, he was very badly beaten by a whole group of LAPD officers. The reason that we know about it is that somebody videotaped it. And so the videotape was shown. I think that there is a lot of evidence that the reason we see a lot of these incidents is because somebody videotapes them. Yeah. And we wonder That's all the there. incidents that we don't see. So in the case of Rodney King, for example, what happened then to the police officers involved? Well, so there was a very high visibility trial and they were acquitted. Um, one of the things that I thought was very important in this case in the beginning was to try to put the jurors in the shoes of the police officers at the scene, all of them. And I think we were able to do that based on the verdicts and the, um, the way that the evidence uh, rolled out. I think that we were able to, to do what we set out to do, which was get the jurors to look at this case, not through the eye of a camera, not through the eye of an amateur video, but through the eyes of the police officers who were uh, confronting this situation on March 3rd, 1991. If you ask about the Los Angeles riots that were associated with the Rodney King beating, the riots actually happened after the white officers were all acquitted. They didn't happen in the immediate aftermath of Rodney King. I think people reacted to what seemed to many like a very unjust verdict. A lot of the discussions that have gone on in the last few years in law schools where I teach are about how we could more effectively 
reform the legal system to get rid of some of these abuses. The problem has been that the police are a very politically powerful entity. Hmm. Can you explain that a bit? What, what do you mean when you say they're a politically powerful entity? Well, the police have unions. The unions contribute money to political campaigns. That's one part. So they push for policies that they want. But I would say the other thing that has been very strong until lately is they can push the fear button pretty effectively. You know, for decades, whenever someone would question the police, they would say, don't change us because crime will go up, people will die. Mm -hmm. Just to use one example, you probably heard of Stop, Question, and Frisk, where in New York City, the police were stopping hundreds of thousands of people on the street and basically questioning them, frisking them. When the federal courts said that that was unconstitutional, the police all said, well, if we stop doing that, the crime rate will go out of control again. The usual card that the police play. And then after that happened and the police dropped this policy, the crime rate didn't go up at all. Wow. So with those obstacles in mind, the fear card and the power of the unions politically, what are you guys in law schools discussing in the past few years as ways that the police system could be performed or the legal system? Well, what's going on right now? I'm Lisa Bender. I'm the president of the Minneapolis City Council. Our efforts at incremental reform have failed. Period. Our commitment is to do what's necessary to keep every single member of our community safe and to tell the truth that the Minneapolis police are not doing that. We are here today to begin the process of ending the Minneapolis Police Department. There's this idea of disband the police, which I think is an extreme demand and probably unlikely to be effective. But the more moderate version of this is put less money into policing mm. and replace them with social workers, replace them with people who actually have the kind of skills to help people and not to arrest them. Yeah. So as far as the funding angle of it, then I know you know, like in Los Angeles, the police department takes up 53% of the city's general fund. In Chicago, the police department takes up 39%. Those figures seem like extremely high. How, do, how does that compare to cities outside of the U.S.? Is it normal for the police force to have that much funding? I think the levels of police funding are high and certainly high when they're considered relative to city budgets in America. But, you know, over the last several decades, America has had a, a movement, a, a government movement, where the government has slowly retreated from lots of social services. I think that you see a similar thing in the UK. Definitely. As those social services have disappeared, people have increasingly been calling the police. Mm. You know, so like there's a mentally ill person in your community, call the police. So... Part of the problem here is not just police who are trained to use force, but be, them being pushed into communities to solve a lot of problems that aren't really problems where the ability to use force is useful. When you talk about these solutions, like um, you know having less police, removing the police from communities, I think it's important to realize that that should go along with reallocating resources to social services. Yeah. Well, I think... In that case, I mean, it's not like that's an easy problem to solve, but thinking of the fact that police are, are getting into territories that they're not educated or, or equipped for, 
reallocating resources towards more social services, that seems like a pretty clear answer to that problem. But then I'm wondering about, you know, the police get a call that there was an armed robbery and they appear on the scene and the description was, oh, it was a tall black man and a completely innocent black man happens to walk by and they arrest him and, and treat him brutally because, oh, you vaguely matched the description that someone called in. How do you deal with that problem? How do you stop that from happening? Well, I, I think this goes back to our discussion about the law mm-hmm. and the leeway that the police have been given. So if we were to have and hold the police to higher standards, we wouldn't allow those kind of things to go on. And if they went on, the police would be held to account for them. Part of this culture of police impunity has been the ability of the police to fend off people who might try to hold them to account. And that's what we're also seeing change. Uh, Partly, I'd have to say, a really important development in America has been video cameras. You know, think about the case in Minnesota. What would have happened in that case if somebody hadn't videotaped that police-citizen interaction? Basically nothing. I mean, because the police had already put out a description of what happened that was completely untrue. It's shocking knowing that and knowing that they were being filmed by so many different bystanders and therefore anything that they said in justification of their actions would be refuted by filmed evidence. It's shocking and really confusing to think that that didn't change their actions in the moment, though. Well, I think it goes back to what we've been saying about this culture of impunity. I think the police have come to think that no one will question their actions. And in the past, I think they were often right. In circumstances that seemed suspicious, the police were given the benefit of the doubt. In this particular case, Minnesota, I think the action the officer took was so egregious and so completely inappropriate that that didn't work. I mean, we've talked about this as sort of a pattern that has happened many times. And, you know, having studied this, you must have just witnessed this pattern again and again where the police do something egregious, there's an uproar, there's protests, and lawmakers promise reform and nothing changes. Then it happens again, it happens again. Do you feel like this this time is different? I'm very hopeful that this time is different, and I'll tell you a specific reason why. The leaders of the police community are acting differently. So the moment that the police chief saw the videotape of the four officers in Minneapolis, he fired those officers. This situation and tragedy last night, I had been um, obviously up all night and reviewing the information that I have to make the decision that I'm standing before you today with many of the community leaders behind me. Before involved, former employees, former employees. Had made that decision this afternoon. Uh, this is still an ongoing criminal matter that the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension is investigating. And the next day, one of the major national police chiefs organizations, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, said that that was the right thing to do. They should have been fired. Ten years ago, neither one of those things would have happened. I believe it's because the police recognize 
that in this era we're in now, where people are not as afraid of crime, where crime is not a major social problem that scares people, people are not willing to put up with any kind of behavior from the police. They're more willing to question the police. Mm. I mean, I hate to put, you know, a pessimistic uh, shadow over that, which, I mean, it is remarkable. It's great that these police chiefs are coming out so quickly to condemn the actions of this officer. But I've also heard that even police chiefs who are really bent on reform, who have really seen the problems of their own department and they're trying to fix them, they come up against the power of police unions who are not interested in reform and are much more interested in defending the police and protecting the police. And in the end, they're powerless to do even basic things like fire officers that have done egregious actions. So isn't that not still going to be a problem here, even if the police chiefs are saying this is horrible, this is egregious, the unions will find a way to protect the police officers and nothing will change? Well, I definitely think it's true that at this moment in history, police unions are acting as a force against change. But I don't think that that leads us to feel hopeless because the unions are only one force. And, you know, what's changing is the other forces. There have been a number of articles in the last couple of weeks about shifting American opinion. What has often supported those efforts is that most white Americans weren't concerned about the police, didn't think the police were a problem. That appears to have been dramatically changed, where now majorities of the American public, the white public, say the police need to change. They say the police are racist. They say they use too much force. They say they need to change. So that's a big shift in the balance of power away from the status quo. Yeah. It is sort of an uncomfortable takeaway, though, to think that the only thing that might bring real reform against this persecution of the Black community is white opinion shifting. Well, that's true, but, you know, it's unfortunately a reality in in the sense that African Americans are 10% of the American population, Mm. so they're a minority. And being a, a minority is a challenging political situation. Yeah. You need you need partners. You need allies. Yeah, and hopefully the allies of that are are growing. Seeing that police brutality that's been endured for so long needs to change. That seems to be true. You know, I I want to be optimistic. I also want to be realistic. And you've pointed to some of the problems, but it does really feel different right now. I, I hope it'll feel like a lot changed when we look back on this in a year. It feels like a different kind of movement. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. 
the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.